goodness, the sea trap has done you a part of good. I should have said trip. I'm a competitive man. Good. Hello and welcome to Goompod, the podcast which celebrates the work of Sellers, Milligan, Seacom and Benteen. As well as looking at the Goon Show itself and individual episodes, we uh, cover solo and collaborative Goon projects. Uh, although any Melting Pot fans out there should be advised that they may be in for a long wait before we cover that one. <laughs> melting Pot! <laughs> we also look at all those important figures within the Goon's universe and any other Goonish bric-a-brac. Uh, as you've been hearing, joining me today is the very special guest, John Dredge. John, um, I'm sure you've been called many things, but how would you describe yourself? <laughs> I have been called many things. You're absolutely right. Uh, probably comedian and podcaster. I do this podcast that's um, very goon influence, really. It's sort of sketches and silly things. So John is joining me today because we're, we're talking about a particular show which gives the lie to the canard that the greatest British comedy western was Carry On Cowboy. We're talking about the Goon Show episode from Series 9, The Call of the West. But before we get into that, John, tell me about your history with the goons. I used to go into the library and get records out, comedy stuff out, and I'd got all the comedy records out, apart from this weird one that had a cartoon on the front of three people, I didn't, and they seemed to be in a dustbin or something. And it was uh, Goon Show Classics, Lurgy Strikes Britain. And I used to look yep. at this every so often in the library and I'd turn it over to the back and it would just have not very much information. It just had information about these musicians I'd never heard of called Max Geldray and Ray Ellington. And I thought, well, I don't really want to get an album of music out that I've never heard of. And in the end, I got it out. I thought, what is this? I couldn't understand what Milligan was saying. I couldn't. He he spoke so quickly, but you know, eventually I got to understand it and got hooked on it. And I just liked the fact that it was essentially it was like a cartoon, but on the radio. It didn't have any rules, and um, everything else in comparison seemed rather staid and boring. And this was just like a blast of mania and madness. And the fact that it was from the fifties was even more peculiar, really. But it sounded as if it could have been made the week before, as far as I was concerned. They took logic and reality and completely inverted it. But at the time, mm. I just reacted to it as this half an hour of madness. The sound effects I absolutely loved as well. The use of sound, I just thought, this is incredible. The use of music, the use of nonsense words. I think I got the Goon Show crisp. Not the Goon Show crisps. I don't think they ever made themselves into a <laughs> salt and vinegar flavour crisps but they, they they put out the goon show book the goon, mm. goon show scripts mm. and uh i thought that was fascinating as well because you could see clearly written out what milligan wanted for the effects how he wanted them to sound and just seeing them described was amazing to me i've heard al murray talking about this he had the same experience of looking at these scripts and thinking what would that sound like <laughs> Because there weren't many available at that time and there weren't many being broadcast on the radio when I was a kid. So I always loved the, the jokes that were just sound effects because I'd never heard that before. Like, for example, you'd have somebody unwrapping something and it would go on for a whole minute. As uh, Grip Pipe said at one point, this thing takes a lot of nerve, you know. You, you know, <laughs> they'd have this really long sound effect. The first time I heard that, I thought, this is... I've never heard anything like this before. And that was a big influence I've heard on people like Ivor Cutler. The example that I love of the sound effect as a gag, they may have done it a couple of times, actually. A big, massive explosion, which seems to last for half a minute. And you can hear the sound of just bricks and yeah. mortar just dropping to the ground. And then it, just as you think it's finished, you just hear the single teaspoon being dropped. <laughs> it was never mean, was it? You know what I mean? It, was always this, it had a lot of joy to it, the whole thing. It, it wasn't mean, there wasn't malice in it. It was just, let's get away from reality for a bit. Let's escape into this colourful, silly world. Yeah, I um, one of the purposes of this podcast is, is for me to uh, re-immerse myself in terms of you know listening to the goons again. I, I sort of stopped listening for many, many years. But because when I was younger, I'd listened to them each hundred times you know they're still very fresh in my head so every time i listen to a show now that i haven't heard for 25 years i know what's coming next because i i know it so well but one thing that i've picked up on that when i was younger i was never particularly bothered about rip pipe thin and moriarty 
I was much more of a fan of the uh, Blue Bottle and Eccles scenes <laughs> that you'd get. Um, and I, I used to find Moriarty a bit annoying, particularly uh, later period Moriarty, who was a lot more sort of sort of craven and uh, desperate, <laughs> uh, down at heel, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> degraded. Ah. Uh, but re-listening to, to a lot of the later shows recently, I actually think that's the bit of the shows I love more than anything is the the grip pipe and Moriarty scenes. He's, he around. keeps I'm him in a crate bit... in the Call of the West. He's, he's keeping him in a crate. He, and he says, "Is it night or day?" And he says, "Fool, that sort of thing's only for the rich." Yeah, because yeah, there's, there's this thing; it goes downhill. It's like the characters do develop. You know, they do develop over the years. They're not completely static. They're not completely, you know, paper thin. I mean, to them, I mean, Sellers said that to them, these characters were real. You know, he based, Blue Bottle was based on this guy that they met. You know that story? Yes, the, the scout. scout the scoutmaster. So there was some sort of reality behind a lot of these characters. In the earlier series, Moriarty is sort of on the same level as Grip Pipe, really. But mm. as the shows go on, as you say, he goes downhill until he's, you know, they're both penniless, but he seems to be really <laughs> at the bottom of the bottom, living in dustbins and whatever he's doing. Just what you said about Sellers believing that the characters were real, and, and it's clear how much affection he had for the show right up to the end. A lot of love for the show, despite all his film success. I was just last night, I was watching the Blu-ray of um, Mr. Topaz. I've never seen which that. Which was... Uh, it's not a, it's not great for being honest. Um, I had seen it before and I got the Blu-ray because uh, I wanted the extras. The extras are fantastic. And there's a uh, 1968 uh, a profile of Peter Sellers. So it's about 40 minute long profile. And it was basically this uh, rather staid chap just talking to Sellers about himself and asking about the films and but what jumped out at me was the amount of time that Sellers was harking back to the goons. Hmm. And particularly, um, he spent an inordinate amount of time talking about Penny Points to Paradise. Did he? Yeah, and they showed quite a, they, they showed maybe three clips from it as well. And it just seemed, dis- I mean, I was glad of it, but it seemed disproportionate for a, you know, a 1968 TV special about Peter Sellers, you'd think that had been focusing on, I don't know, Casino Royale or Pink Panther or whatever it may be. But um, yeah, I mean, that was just an example of him still thinking back very fondly about the show and, and obviously Spike and Harry. There's a really brilliant radio documentary about the goons called A Sound of Goons, presented by Fr- oh, yeah. Frank Muir. Have you heard that one? Mm. And it, yes, I have. And he talks yeah. to Bert, Peter Sellers' chauffeur, and he says... Mm. As he got, as Sellers got more and more successful in films, he got less and less sure of who liked him for himself. You know, who actually genuinely was a friend and who wasn't, and who was out to get something and who wasn't. And he he looked back to the Goon Show days and Spike and Harriet as his friends that just wanted yeah. him to do his bit, and then they'd go and have a cup of tea somewhere. And yeah. he missed that, I think, in later life. He he sort of ended up with no. No centre, you know, no, no, no proper focus to his life, it seems to me. Uh, he was probably one of the most difficult men to live with. <laughs> I think he said this about most of the ladies. I don't know how they put up with him, you know. But he was. Uh, there were days he'd have great highs. And he was really on cloud nine. Really enjoying himself. Everything was marvellous. And then another day, he'd be on a real low. And I mean a real low, you know, depths of depression. And he would shut the door and, and he wouldn't want to speak to anybody or associate with maybe two or three days. He'd cut himself off. And then he'd come out of it and everything was fine and he'd be back on another high. Yeah, what came across from this television show I was watching, he seemed desperate to please. You imagine that his palms are sweaty and he's trying to trying to be pleasing and trying to be amusing. That's interesting because he certainly wasn't desperate to please, you know, some of his directors, I don't think. (laughs) And I know that he was really worried about going on Parkinson and doing that interview. He sort of called and just said, you know, I can't come on as myself. And he was he was going to cancel it. And then in the end, Parkinson said, come on as somebody else then, which is what he Mm. did. If you remember, he came on as some sort of German person. He even um, pressed into service Britt Eklund. He basically did this little bit of business at the end of this 
television profile where he, he he all but dragged her out of the house in front of the camera not in an aggressive way but he basically sort of you know called her out of the house and she came out looking a bit sheepish and, there's, and then they both basically waved at the camera as the credits rolled huh. with big sort of cheesy grins on their faces oh, yeah <laughs> so um this show that we're we're discussing today, obviously the call, the call of the West, which was broadcast January 1959, actually literally days before uh, Larry Stevens collapsed and died, which obviously I discussed Larry Stevens on a, a previous episode. So, what was it about the Call of the West that appealed to you? I think it's the relentless onslaught of of, of peculiar things happening. Just it's just so mad, but it's still got a foot in being conventionally funny occasionally milligan doesn't care whether people what people think anymore you know it, it, it's it's just got a stream of nonsensical words at the start i mean i, I yeah. don't know what anyone would think of this if they'd never heard the goon show before but because it's so insane but i really like the use of sound effects and they're talking about a wallpapered stallion for some reason and then you just hear this galloping horse that's got boots on stuff like that that the plot doesn't really matter it's set in the Old West. I love that. Ostensibly. I love the fact but that it's, it's, the old it's West. translating all the normal goon characters, I say normal, all the goon characters to the Wild West. Uh, and that's a great concept. You know, you've got Eccles and Blue Bottle in the Wild West and Blue Bottle has, has gone to Dodge City by bus. So they've, they've got these characters that live in Acton and, and, and they've dumped them in the Wild West. And it's just a great, <laughs> just being really stupid. I think it's this the insane stupidity, it's just the stupidity of it. The unfettered lunacy of it that, that i love yeah because you talk about weird incongruous sound effects what was the reason that spike because if you look in the script it very specifically asks for the sound effect of electronic gunfire <laughs> i know Wait. and there's another bit where it says effects jelly splosh electronic yeah so what's that is that because they're using the radiophonic workshop has that just started up yeah could be could be. Because I know they put together Major Bloodnock's stomach when they opened the Radiophonic right. Workshop. So in the end, it was called Radiophonic Stomach. And uh, it's a classic. <laughs> it's a great, it's one of the greatest, greatest sound effects of all time, really. Um, it is. But I think the head of the workshop said, I don't want this just to be a goon show sound effects shop. So maybe there was a limit to the amount you could use them. But nevertheless, he obviously wanted to use them as, as more colours in his you know, palette or, or whatever you want to call it. I love the the specific nature when you read the scripts, how specific those sound effects are. Like, you know, the classic is two lions growling. If you can't get two lions, two gorillas will do. Yeah. <laughs> Just really specific. Yeah. So going back to what you said before, no, this would not be the show that you would introduce someone. No, I think so, because it's so... I mean, even now it's really hard to hear what Milligan's saying. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I got that's um, how the audience heard it. There's a bit where there's a joke where you can barely hear what he's saying. I mean, he says something like, I saw a lot of Red Indians going by on horseback, but I stuck my tongue out of them. Did you get injured? Yeah, where? In the tongue. Yes. But the way Milligan says it, you can't hear what he's saying. Well, no, he just stuck yeah. my tongue out of them. Did you get injured? Yeah, where? <laughs> Pardon? Yeah. You know. <laughs> you cannot hear what he's saying. And Moriarty, similarly, you can barely work out what he's saying after the time, you know. Milligan had issued the BBC with a big list of demands prior to Series 9 starting, most of which were rejected. Really? Do you know what sort of uh, things, he, do you know what sort of things he, he demanded? Yeah. The one that sticks in my mind is possibly the result of a fallout that he had with Sellers. He requested that Valentine Dial be drafted in as a regular performer huh. in Series 9. I mean, um, he's a great performer. Take... He is a great performer. And I've heard him in The Goon Show. He's great in it. Well, but, to, but specifically to take on some of the roles that Sellers take uh, on. Would do. Oh, right, take on some of mm. Sellers' parts. Mm. What? Yeah. So Sellers was supposed to stand there while somebody else did blood blood knock. The BBC basically sort of said, "No, you, you know, we're not doing any of this." <laughs> but I think he. I think they maybe made a few little slight concessions. But but with with regards to this show. I was much more familiar with it in script form because I had the Morgoon Show scripts book mm -hmm. in which it appears. And it was one of those shows that I'd read long before I actually heard it. Um, yeah, I think I, I was the same. The... I think I was the same. I think that made me want to hear it. Well, it's weird because I got the tech because it was on a BBC commercial release. It was on and uh, just continuing my my habit of mentioning The Last Smoking Seagoon in every episode of this podcast. 
uh, last smoke of Seagoon was on side B of the tape that Call of the West was on. And I didn't hate it. Of course, I didn't hate it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed other shows. It's more abstract than a lot of them. I mean, yeah. the, the plot is uh, barely exists. The plot is Moriarty wants to sell saxophones to the Indians for some reason. <laughs> yeah. And that's the extent of the plot. That's it. Yeah, they're, they're basically hucksters, aren't they? Yeah. Trying to yeah. sell sell these saxophones. Blood Knock's like a medicine show quack. Yeah. Something like that. That's right. Re-listening to it, the, the thing that jumped out at me was um, how much work Seacom had. He had four roles. That's interesting. In this, in this episode. He plays this really old guy, old Uncle Oscar, which is really funny. Mm. He plays um, Seagoon and he plays Blue Bottle's mum. He does. Now, Blue Bottle's does. mum does not appear, as far as I'm aware, in any other goon show. So, no, so it's worth, <laughs> worth hearing just for that. <laughs> Suddenly the, bird, the, door, the door opens and in comes Blue Bottle's mum. And presumably the door is in the middle of the desert. I don't know. <laughs> Never thought of that, but she, he does a good job as Blue Bottle. He's man, brilliant. He plays this cockney, um, cockney mother who's uh, starts whacking him over the head. She grabs his lug hole, doesn't she? Oh Drags yeah, that's off. right. Yeah. There you are, your dirty little tramp. <laughs> I'll give you old man, your father. We're looking everywhere for his true man. We've got a shot in our set. You because he plays Lieutenant Hearn Hearn as well. He plays an American oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. character, and Uncle Oscar was in one other show that I can think of, which was the 50 pound cure. Right. Which is another really weird show. It, yeah. So I'm just wondering what, cause they didn't need uncle Oscar. <laughs> they could have just had Minnie and Henry. Yeah, so I wonder, they why could, they, yeah. wonder why they had him. I don't know. I, I wonder, uh, you know, obviously Milligan was obviously pretty exhausted by this point after writing a show. I was wondering whether, cause, cause the vintage goons series had been recorded during the latter half of series eight, I think. So that obviously, and I think Larry Stevenson had quite a bit to do with dusting off some old scripts from series four. Um, obviously update them, tweak them. But I'm just wondering, and the reason I mentioned that is because I'm wondering whether Spike had been maybe looking at some of the older scripts around that time because they bring back a character in Call of the West that um, had appeared in series one and series two, which was um, Colonel Slocum, the, the seller's American military right. gentleman. Right. Who spits... <laughs> Yeah, that's a great joke. It's, yeah. uh, he goes, what? Doom. That's it. And then a bit later on, he goes, Doom. bring that thing closer. Which is a great joke. It's just, yeah. the thing, it's just so mad. I mean, I'm sure there was nothing else on BBC Radio in whenever it was, 1959, that was anything like that. I mean, I, I read in uh, Kenny Everett's autobiography that The Goons was just it. You know, they all used to talk about it in the playground for the whole week until the next one, because there was nothing else around remotely like it. This particular show, there's a lot of corny gags, which are in there just by virtue of the fact that they're corny, hoary old gags. Um, And at one point, someone makes a joke and Seacom pipes up and says... um, Sounds like Munkhouse and Goodwin got here for it. By the way, I think Benteen came back for that one performance. You know, he left. I, think I heard one of your podcasts. Oh, yes. Yes. He came, I think he came back for that one performance to show that he hadn't really fallen out with them all and they were all still good friends. That's what I heard him say once. So that's one, oh, really? that's one reason why he came back for that one performance a bit later. And they obviously it's... were friends. I mean, they, they appeared on each other's shows later on. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen the one-off Granada show from, I think, 1980 called Here Comes Channel 8. Have you seen that? No, what's that? It was a, the the conceit was, it was a one-off kind of comedy music variety special. Um, And the conceit is that it is, so it was made in 1980, but it's set in, I think, 1999, if memory serves. And it features, um, it's basically... There's now eight television channels. Imagine that. Eight television channels in <laughs> 1999. And yeah, and it's basically, it's like um, the the very topical, as we're recording this, it's the launch of a new television channel and all the attendant uh, celebrations that go with that. And there's musical acts. And we're supposed to believe that this is 1999. So 20 years in the future from when it was actually filmed. 
And the reason I mention it is that it features Benting, who is pretty much playing like a continuity announcer, I suppose. Yeah. It features at one point Spike being interviewed by Benting. Huh. And Spike, Spike's got this big, long, white beard playing uh, a hundred-year-old man. And, and Spike's just riffing. Spike's just making up. Benting's right. asking him questions. Spike's just saying whatever comes into his head. Yeah, oh. um, I'm assuming that I'm assuming there probably was a script or some form of a script, and he just basically threw it out the window. And Benteen at one point is cracking up, and you know how Benteen giggles. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Really, really funny. Benteen, Milligan, and Seacom were all on this program. Benteen presented this kids' show called Mad About, and he he got Milligan and Seacom involved in one of those. It was just a kids' show about. I don't know what you can go and do in your spare time. But it was just interesting to see that, it, you know, they all got together again for that show. When was that? Around 80. I think it was around 1980. Because when I was living in Belfast, which was the early 90s, I'm fairly certain that there was a special edition of Highway, obviously presented by Harry. Yeah. In which Milligan and Benteen appear. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, no, I haven't seen that. Um, I had it on. I had this. I've mentioned it before. I had this. I had this three hour video which I just taped everything that came on TV that had a goon, that was goon-related. Yeah. I mean, there's, the thing that I love about the goons, the other th- one of the other things that I love about it is the fact that the chemistry between them is just unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's better than anybody, really. Just like, as Sellers said, they, they, they worked as if they were one person. Mm. Just unbelievable the way that the timing works with those three guys. Just hearing that is, 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 is always great. And I love hearing Milligan laughing in the background or one of the others blowing a raspberry. Yeah, I love it when Sellers dissolves into giggles. Yeah, he's got this high pitch. He, he goes, <laughs> I can't do it. But yeah. it's, it's, you know, you know, it's it. I mean, I've listened to them so much. I know when he's laughing. Yeah. Even Milligan laughs in the background. He's got a deeper sort of laugh. Well, do you think of the, the sequence from. Shifting Sands, the episode Shifting Sands, when Jack Train, oh yeah, as Colonel as, as Colonel Chinstrap, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and there's this sequence b- between him and Bloodnock, which right. is extremely funny, yeah, and you can hear Milligan and Seekham laughing, and it's a genuine, deep, appreciative yeah. laugh. Uh, uh, oh, thank you. Uh, Oh, that's your good, you know, doesn't oh, it? Say, Dennis. Yes, yes. Anything happened during the night? Uh, in the night? Yes. Oh, the night, yes. Oh, well, Humphrey, the fort was attacked by 15,000 tribesmen, but they were driven off by a frenzied shrieking figure waving a whiskey bottle. <laughs> good heavens, who was it? You, sir. <laughs> Are you sure, Dennis? Am I sure? Of yes. course I'm sure. Uh, thank you. You weren't the only one in that night shirt, you know. <laughs> oh, it was hell in there. <laughs> well. Bottoms up. One thing I'd kind of taken for granted was just how busy Peter Sellers was. In that show? At this time. Oh, in the, well, at that time? At the, at the time in general, because this show, Call of the West, was recorded on, uh, let's have a look at my notes here, 18th of January, would have been a Sunday. Now, at the time, he'd started filming I'm Alright, Jack. Previously, he'd just finished working on The Mouse That Roared. Uh, he was also appearing in a West End play called Brouhaha. Right, which, which was a total disaster, I believe. Uh, thanks to... Sellers expert, goon expert, Mark Cousins. I guess he's the Mark Lewison of the goon universe. He provided me with some information about the play Brouhaha. And the reason that Sellers took it on was just so he could tick off on his list that he'd been in a West End play. It's oh, as simple right. as that. Yeah. Peter um, Hall, Peter Hall directed it, yeah? Correct, Yeah. So his heart wasn't really in it. It was more that he just wanted to be able to say, well, I've been in a West End play, don't you know? And he, he not only was the fact, you know, he'd taken on too much. He was doing The Goons. He was doing, he was filming. He, he also got very disgruntled or bored with, by, by its very nature, because it's a play, there's going to be a lot of repetition. You're going to do the same play 
night after night and he got bored with that so he began ad-libbing and improvising and that was all very well working alongside you know old professionals like Lionel Jeffries and Leo McKern who could kind of roll with that but a lot of the other actors couldn't cope with Sellers improvising it sometimes turn up drunk he went to a party when Alec Guinness got his knighthood Sellers went to the party that Guinness threw and it must have been during the day and he turned up at the theater in the evening to do the play and basically went out on stage and said to the audience well I'm sloshed do, do you still want me to go on or shall we all go home uh, and the audience basically shouted back they wanted him to continue so he just basically did the performance half cut I think it was about a, a month after the call of the west was recorded Sellers basically said, I'm not doing the play anymore and, and quit. That reminds me of this thing. I, I've never seen this mentioned anywhere, but I went to see, must have been 20 years ago, it might have been longer than that, I went to see this play about the goons. It was set in a, in a hospital. It was, Milligan was in this hospital bed and during the course of this play, all the other goons came in and they, they were trying to get him to do the next series and try and get him to write some more shows. And it was set in the right. early days of the Goon Show, and it was it was in London. It was an original play. I can't remember what the thing was called, but I remember it being really good. I remember the actors being excellent. I remember being really drawn into it. But it, I think it must have only had a short run, and I've never heard of it since. I mean, Milligan had well, the strain I... of writing it, and I suppose Sellers at, at, at that point, at this point, had the strain of all these performances that he'd, he'd taken on. And you can even hear in the shows themselves, although it's not immediately obvious, but if you know when to, where to look, there's tetchiness sometimes. You can, you can hear it because do you remember when, more so I guess in the sort of mid-series show, five, series five, series six, occasionally Grit Pipe Thin would mispronounce Moriarty's name slightly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Moriarty, he, he says. Moriarty, he would say. And I always used to think, why is he? Why has he done that? Why? That's strange. But then you just kind of accept it's the goons. They're just you know. But I read somewhere, and I'm not sure if it's in the uh, Wilmot book. I read that that was Sellers' way of indicating to Milligan that he was annoyed with Milligan's performance or the way that Milligan was acting. <laughs> God, <laughs> that was like that was like that was code to Milligan to oh, sort of no. wind your neck in or dial it down or whatever it may be. That's interesting. I mean, I always thought that Milligan was absolutely great in the Goons. I can't imagine anybody else doing what he did. Although Sellers did once in one Goon show, he took over Milligan's parts, didn't he? In um, I think it's the McReeky Rising where Sellers does yes. Milligan's parts as well, and you can't tell. Even I can't really tell. But um, yeah, people yeah people people say Milligan overacts or whatever. There's a bit in the Lamp Post where some oh, yes. weird actor called A. E. Matthews who keeps saying to Milligan, "You act too much." Yes. Um, but I always <laughs> thought he was absolutely amazing. You know, I just thought he was. I mean, he, these characters to me are just as immortal as Sellers' characters in that show. Yeah, and he became like a lot of comedians do. I guess he as he got older. He became a little bit jaded, a little bit bitter about the newer comics and the newer comedians. Yeah, I don't think he Not liked so Rick much... Reeves. He didn't like Rick Reeves, which surprised me. No, and, he didn't. And he didn't really like Rick Mail and all, all, all them either. He did no. like Kenny Everett. That's interesting to me. He yes. he said that he he said his humour isn't like mine, but it runs parallel. That's what he said. And I always loved Kenny Everett, and it was just interesting that he. He liked them. I mean, he obviously loved the two Ronnies. He loved uh, Morecambe and Wise. W.C. Fields, wasn't it, he liked. But of the, uh, of the newer yes. breed, he, he liked Everett. And, uh, you know, that was, that was good to see that. He was, you know, he was quite friendly with the, the Pythons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He appears in Life of Brian. <laughs> and upstages John Cleese, which is not easy. He does. <laughs> he, upstages, he, he upstages him with nothing to say. That's the amazing thing about that performance. <laughs> He's got about three... I don't think he's got any lines to say. He Not says really. well, one he thing he, at the end, and that's about it. It's incredible. And then he does that, that thing... He does that Milligan thing with his hands where he yeah. clutches and unclutches his fists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is that funny? <laughs> uh, 
I mean, that's, 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 yeah, that's a great scene. In fact, Milligan wanted to do a film about the Bible. This is before, years before Life of Brian. I read that he wanted, he'd started work on a film about the Bible. And I guess in the end, some of those ideas worked their way into the book, The Bible According yes. to Spike Milligan. But he, yeah. he, he wanted to make that as a film with Sellers. And um, in the end, the Pythons beat him to it, yeah. I could well imagine, almost forgive Milligan for being resentful of the Pythons. Yeah, I could definitely. If you look at some of the, the Python sketches, they're almost, I mean, they are very, very similar to what he was doing in the Q series, a lot of them. Yeah. There's a running, there's a, there's a joke where they're on a, on a running field in, in Q and they do, they do a standing still race and all these oh, runners, yeah. all these runners pixelatedly go across the field just standing still and there's something really similar in python you've just reminded me actually you saying standing still i watched i rewatched the running jumping and standing still film last night because um it was one of the extras on the uh blu-ray i was watching mm-hmm. not watched it for again probably 25 years something like that and it was only on this most recent viewing of it that i realized the significance of the final shot which I don't know if you remember, it's, it's Leo McKern was wearing the boxing glove and you see him go into his little hut and uh, still with the boxing glove on, lie down on his bed. And, it, and it's, it's only this viewing that I got the significance of that, the sort of yeah. the suggestion. It is a bit suggestive. <laughs> but the thing about the goons is they weren't allowed to be very suggestive, were they? And that's what I like. That's another thing I like about it. I mean, I know there are references to old army jokes now and again but generally speaking they weren't allowed to be smutty and so they had to find another way to to be funny and i actually think that really gives it a a charm you know it's it hasn't lost that innocence there is an innocence to the goon show that i really love absolutely but saying that there's there's a line in this very show which is um yeah, there was something a bit off colour. Uh, I, I, I can't remember what it was. Basically, it's Minnie and Henry and old Uncle Oscar, and they think that they're going to be attacked, um, what we would now call Native Americans. Um, and Minnie basically says, are they the ones that commit atrocities? And Henry says, yes, men. And she says, I'll go upstairs and get ready. Yeah, that gets a big laugh as well. But yeah, that's like, I mean, they don't... That's unusual to, to have something like mm. that in a show. They do have certain references to, you know, <laughs> to sort of... They, 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 they got away with things. They did get away with things. But generally speaking, it, it didn't concentrate on, you know, vulgarity. And I think possibly some of Milligan's later work did suffer from, from that. But, yeah, the, you know, it's, 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 the Goon Show was done with great heart somebody said once and i thought that was a nice way of putting it you know it's very warm yeah. you know it's very warm it's probably something to do with the relationship between those three guys yeah i mean the the best of the q series is some of the best television comedy ever recorded um, I, I actually think um one of the best performers well one of the best performers full stop um is john bluthel oh yeah but yeah, john, yeah yeah he was great on that show John Bluthall in the Q series was amazing. He was able to keep up with Milligan's sort of strange yes. deviations from the script. <laughs> yeah. And just work with him like that. I think they worked together in the bed-sitting room, which I would have loved to have seen. I don't know if any footage exists of Milligan in the bed-sitting room on, uh, you know, the, at the Mermaid Theatre, but I would have loved to have seen that. It was such a bit... Yeah. I've read the book of it. I've read the script of it. I saw the film of it. But just reading that script is so, again, so strange you know you wonder what it would have been like and apparently it was a massive success for him and he changed yes. it a lot he would just ad-lib and keep himself interested well he did that show was it oblomov yeah i wonder if it's... there's any footage of that that's one of the most amazing stories i've ever heard you know in terms of show business the fact that he the first night it was a, it was a serious russian play oblomov the first night he went on stage and he couldn't remember his lines so he started ad-libbing put a few jokes in or something and everyone thought this is terrible but that they never got any more rehearsal time and so he just ended up ad-libbing his part every night until it <laughs> turned on its head and became this 
improvisational showcase for Milligan's incredible uh, comic genius. And it was different every night. You'd make something up different every night. And it became son of Oblomov and transferred to the comedy theatre and was a huge hit. Mm, yeah. And I don't know if any of that ever exists. The great thing about The Goon Show is that, you know, all these shows still exist. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's lucky, you know. Well, you say all. the, the From Series 5 onwards, they exist, but some of Series 4. But there's so many that, that don't exist anymore, which is such a shame because we never really get to hear much of Benteen at all. No, I mean, I have heard the odd bit of Benteen and uh, I actually thought he was great in it. But um, yeah, we don't get much of a sense of what his contribution was. I actually received a message on Twitter from someone who'd listened to the first episode of GoonPod in which myself and Adam, my guest, we, we, we talk about Benteen briefly. And this person sent me this message and he said, really enjoyed your show, but you were a bit dismissive about Benteen. And I guess I was. The problem is that when it comes to the goons, I really only know Benteen from the Z-Men film and from the couple of existing recordings from series two. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard to get a really good feel for what he was like, you know, as, as part of the goon show. The, the clips I've heard, I thought he fitted in absolutely brilliantly. I mean, you know, he did Osric Pureheart, the professor, I thought yes. that fitted in absolutely great, you know, and he he clearly had a hand in the script because I think his style was a lot, you'd have a lot of build-up to one joke. So instead of, like, I think Milligan's stuff, you'd have joke after joke after joke, you know, one line after one line after, funny bit after. But Benteen, I think his it was more of a slow burn that he used to do. He would do, it would be quite a long pause before the laugh, but when the laugh came, it was, it was, it was a big one, you know, that's how he worked. That's and those right. were the two stars, right. I think. What I'd like to cover at one point is Benteen's radio series. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, that was a, that the, was a good show. That was great. The best of Benteen's. Well, that's it. That's, it was that show that actually made me realise, actually, God, you know, he, you could see why he had been a member of the team. Yeah. Based on, based on that 1980s radio series. I was telling a friend of mine who's a Goon fan, and at some point he's going to come on and do a show as well. I was telling him about the fact I was going to be covering this, you know, Call of the West. And he said, oh, that's got my favourite bit in it. I was like, oh, which bit's that? And he said, it's... Um... Hello, boy. I had eggs for tea. <laughs> <laughs> that's Max Geldray's line. It's like, what? You can imagine Milligan at home as he's writing a script, sucking the end of his pencil, thinking... Okay, I need a line for Max to say. What can I? What can I have him say? Yeah, I, 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 I love it when you hear these little extra voices coming in. I actually really like that. So you've got mm. Geldre, you've got Ellington, who's really a really funny performer. Actually, I, he's, yeah. he's excellent. You know, he, they, and George Chisholm from the band occasionally has lines, yes. doesn't he? And you yes. just hear these odd little voices, and when they have special guests in, it's interesting that you mentioned Valentine Dial because I think he's brilliant in it. He's got such a sort of deep resonant uh axily voice and it works saying these nonsensical things he's in the canal if you if you know what i mean yes. and he's yes. brilliant in that he's just such a great and he's in a lot of milligan's tv work ladies and gentle pong this is the man in black speaking a funny thing happened to me on my way to the theater tonight <laughs> a steamroller ran over my head <laughs> so much for humor now john one thing that you did want to mention, and you, you mentioned it to me earlier, and I was incredibly intrigued, uh, and it was the Phantom Raspberry Blower. I came across this mad... They were auctioning a script. The script in question was The Phantom Raspberry Blower of Old London Town by Spike Milligan. This script was for a one-off TV special, and mm -hmm. I looked into this a bit further, and it turned out that The Phantom Raspberry Blower which later became a serial on the two Ronnies, was intended yeah. to be a vehicle for all three of the goons, a TV special. And it didn't happen, sadly, but uh, it, the script was meant to have been written in the late 60s. That's all, that's all I know about it. And it would have been the TV okay. reunion of the goons. So that, oh, would have, that's that was amazing. That is amazing, isn't it? And, you know, and then, uh, several things happened to that script. It became a half-hour comedy with Ronnie Barker, first of all. Do you know about that? Yes. And yes. then it was split up into the serial that was done on the two Ronnies. Well, that's, that's intriguing, though, about this 
proposed television. I'd never heard of that before, ever. And and if it had come, if it had uh, been a hit, then presumably they'd have made others. They might have made a whole uh, series, yeah, as a TV yeah. show, yeah. You could imagine a kind of like a, I suppose, a ripping yarns kind of yeah. series, or a sort of you know following on from things like the Muckinese Battlehorn, those yeah. sort of shows. I mean, it would have been brilliant. I think it would have worked really well. I'm just thinking. I mean, what was Sellers doing in the late '60s? He wasn't doing a lot. I mean, he was probably busy getting married most of the time. But he wasn't. I mean, he, that was a real kind of fallow period for him. The was late sixties. He was. He'd made. He'd not had a hit film for quite some time. Uh, in fact, I think. I think. He, I mean, Casino Royale would have been sixty-seven. He didn't have a serious commercial success until Return of the Pink Panther, which was what seventy-four. Right. So you'd you'd expect. 68 69 if, if milligan phones up and says listen i've written this this great script um i want you to play most of the parts i'll play a handful and harry can just <laughs> play harry yeah um it's sort of a mad, mad to me that monty python took off in america the way that it did i mean they've never heard of the goons over there i don't think generally speaking no i think they tried to it, it got radio play to some extent i remember woody allen some... was a fan of it on the radio i remember him mentioning it how was he Obviously, Sellers and Milligan both appeared on The Muppet Show. Yeah, now, that was made in England. That was made in England, but obviously, you know, it was it was shown in America yeah. as a primetime show. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and people would know would obviously know Sellers, but not that many, I guess, would be familiar with Milligan. The Milligan one on The Muppets is definitely one of the weirdest things he ever did. And yeah. that's saying something, isn't it? Yeah, he does this mad sketch in the middle of it, which is so bizarre. You know, Waldorf and Statler just go, "I don't know what he was talking about." Yeah. But, but <laughs> the Muppets is great because it's so anarchic. I mean, he fitted right in there. Another thing on TV, nobody really talks about this. Another, I think one of the only places Milligan properly fitted right in on television and was comfortable on was Tiz was, and. Uh, he appeared in the last series of that. He made several appearances and he fitted right in because it was so mad. It was completely live and uh, he could just do stupid sketches and amuse the kids, which he was great at, obviously. And uh, he fitted right in because there was no retakes. <laughs> he could just ad lib to his heart's content and uh, did some really good sketches on that show. And while I'm here, I just want to mention another thing that people don't really mention in, when Milligan is um, discussed. The best thing he ever did visually was his section of the film The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins. <laughs> have you have you seen yeah. that film? Yes. I, have. I think yeah. that that is the best thing he ever did visually. He does a 10-minute sequence on sloth, and that to me is the best uh, visual thing he ever did. So if, if, you, if anyone out there has never seen it, the rest of the film is terrible, right? Yeah, it's the it's, best thing in the film by far. It's Graham Stark's film. I think he only ever directed one film, and that was it. And, and Seacombe's in that as well, isn't he? Seacombe is, in, strangely enough, in a different sketch. He doesn't yes. appear in Milligan's yeah. one. Milligan's one's got Marty Feldman in it. Yeah. But, but it's definitely... I, do you, what do you think? I mean, I, I would say it's worth having a look at. Oh, for that alone, absolutely. But I don't know, you know, Milligan, in terms of TV and film, it, for some reason it didn't. he didn't quite translate, I mean... He was perfect on for radio. I mean, he couldn't have used the medium in a, in a better way. Nobody has used the medium in a better way than Milligan on the Goon Show. Mm. Yeah. Another another visual another visual interpretation of the Goon Show that I thought was quite good was when the Goon Show cartoons book came out. I remember getting one oh, of those. Oh yeah. I got one of those yeah. for Christmas when I was a kid, and I thought it was absolutely great. It was someone called Pete Clark who took the some of the Milligan scripts of the goons and yeah just made them into cartoon strips and published them as a book and i thought he did a really good job a really good job considering that everybody has their own image of what those characters look like i thought it was great and um yes it's it's you know brings back happy memories to look at that book brings back memories of christmas you know 1980 or whatever it was yeah i i, I also have a lot of time for hunt emerson yeah who did it's interesting Some because the... I think Milligan like was aware of Benteen's you know contribution to what he did, and I think he because I, I think I'm right in saying that Milligan was sent to one of the Goon Show presidents of Preservation Society magazines that had a Hunt Emerson cartoon of the three of them, mm -hmm. and he said, "Could you put Michael Benteen in?" 
because he was part of it, and we used oh, to laugh. Right. We used to laugh so much at his um, Osric pure heart. We used to cry with laughter at him. So it was interesting that he asked for Bentin to be put yeah. in there. Um, well, that is nice. Yeah, he did those beautiful covers for some of the Goon Show classics. Really terrific stuff. I just think of the tape that had or the LP that had nineteen eighty five. What, gra- oh, what a great cartoon on the front for that one. And for yeah. the I Was Monty's Treble LP as well, the, yes. the football match. He, those yeah, cartoons yeah. are really vibrant and vivid and, you know, full of life and full of silliness and, you know, a great a great piece of work. And this is a question that I, I am going to probably ask every person that comes on the show. Did you used to fast forward through the Galdre and Ellington ones? <laughs> Um, did I used to get, I used to quite like it as a, I liked having that music there actually. It was all part of it. And I, I liked the fact that, that they were like commercial breaks. So, you know, you could have a rest from it for a minute. I mean, I actually thought that those two, having that music on there really worked well. You'd have this, you know, you'd have part one of the goons, complete insanity. Then you'd have a little break. You'd have Max Gerdre come on and you could go and have a cup of tea. Then more insanity follows. Ray Ellington breaks it up nicely. And then you got, you know, and then it comes to an end. So I thought the music was, it had a place and it had a purpose. And, uh, but I never really appreciated it. Although it was, it's still part of it. And I can't imagine the Goon Show without that. Well, the thing is, in this show in particular, Call of the West, the because normally there there would be a you know green slave would step in and actually introduce so you'd say you know here's max galdre or whatever in this it's actually it actually sort of is absorbed into the the narrative it's so beautifully um, done it's so beautifully mm. done that the the, the the sort of horses move off and uh then you hear this harmonica playing and you, it's playing what's it playing i come from alabama with a banjo on my knee or something something like that he's playing a yeah. little cowboy melody on the harmonica which leads nicely into his his song. I thought that was really nice. It sort of adds to the cinematic feel of the whole piece. In the very early shows, I mean, the Benteen show that I heard, there's like about five songs in the Blooming Thing. There's tons of music. I think the yeah, Stargazers had... did a song or someone like S- that. Stargazers, yes. And then like yeah. Max does one, Ray does a song. Harry Seacombe does a straight song. He sings an operatic, <laughs> he sings something from yeah. an opera dead straight, you know, yes. all the way through. So it's as half of it is music in that first series. There's one or two recordings of the audience warm-up. Greenslade introduces the goons individually. So introduces Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers walks out. The audience applauds and Sellers uh, tells this joke with plenty of voices and that goes down well. And then Greenslade introduces Harry Seacombe and Harry comes out and Harry sings a song straight, just sings. And then he introduces Milligan and Milligan comes out and tells this joke that I still don't understand to this day. (laughs) (laughs) i'm not and i'm not even going to begin to try and tell it because i'll get it wrong and i don't think the audience i don't think half the audience got it either because he had a strange he had a strange attitude towards audiences milligan sometimes didn't they they both they both did there's a bit there's a line on in the last goon show of all where sellers is doing crun and milligan is obviously meant to come in as mini banister yeah and and he hasn't come in yet and sellers Sellers sort of points at Milligan, sort of cueing him in. And Milligan says, let him wait. And that is, you know what I mean? He's like, that's quite a dismissive attitude towards the audience at that point. Well, there was was a famous show, live show that they did in Coventry. Oh, yeah. I think Milligan went down badly. And uh, yeah, he jumped on his trumpet, that's right, and stormed off. Sellers went on with a box of records <laughs> he said oh that's right he said i've yes. just bought some christmas records and i thought you might like to hear them 
And instead of doing his act, he puts this record on and just sits there while this this song <laughs> plays. And at the end, the audience applauds and he bows and goes off. And then yeah. the manager comes up to him and says, um, what do you think you do? You can't just go on like, and do your act like that. He said, well, that's better than my act's ever gone. He says, if I, he says, uh, if I had another record, I'd go on again. Yeah, you'll never work in Coventry again. Yeah. <laughs> Just the idea of someone sitting there and playing records as their acts. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It shows, it shows the fearlessness that he had. There's probably people up going up to Edinburgh doing that now. What brings you here to Coventry? Money! 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 <laughs> Quite seriously, first of all, what, what are you doing here at the Coventry Theatre? Well, we're, we're doing um, a number of concerted terms. Mm-hmm. But you don't rights. normally travel, do you? Away from a radio show, you're not normally out no, on tour, no. we, we do an odd variety of dates together, but um, it's the first time we've ever been together as a team over any length of time. Hooray! They were sort of so ahead of their time, as, as well as being of their time, they were very ahead of their time and broke every yeah. rule. And it's sort of amazing, it's sort of... The BBC has to be commended for letting them do it. You know? Yes. Right. So, I mean, we've established that this particular show, this particular episode, wouldn't be... The, the first show that you'd play to no, somebody who's never heard it before. Be. What would you, what would you suggest? What would you, what would be your pick for, you know, an introductory episode? It might be the, the dreaded batter pudding hurler because that okay. is, it, it's quite clear what's going on. <laughs> it's got a clear plot. It's got lots of big jokes and you can follow yes. it quite easily. And there is some sort of conclusion. <laughs> Do you still do people still talk about batter pudding? I don't think they do. That's a good point. Maybe like people these days have never heard of it. <laughs> That's the problem. You'd have it'd be because the first obstacle to get over would be explaining what batter pudding is. Um, see, I I would probably go of that sort of era. I would probably go for something like the Phantom Head Shave of Brighton. Well, you know, they're there's they're similar episode titles anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he liked phantoms, didn't he? When he couldn't think of anything yes. to put, he'd just have another phantom come in. <laughs> phantoms or dreaded's. He liked the word dreaded. The, the funniest thing I ever heard as a kid was definitely the Ying Tong song. When I first heard that, I remember yeah. me and my friend, I think we were about eight years old, just on the floor. Like, I mean, I, I could not believe that anything could be as funny as that. <laughs> There's not really jokes in it. It's, it's just the way it's constructed and the use of ludicrous sound noises and voices that makes it really a, a great comic song yes. and uh, yes. once you've once heard never forgotten they even did that on the muppet show they did a version of that on the muppet yeah, show yeah. that's right <laughs> who's at the beginning of the ying tong song oh yeah the, the sort of the preamble at the beginning yeah who's that i think that's wallace greenslade see that's what i thought as well but i'm not i wouldn't swear to it i mean it's who else would not, it be i don't know it's certainly not it's not harry no, I think um, it's Wallace, isn't it? That's a really good question. If anyone's listening who knows the answer to that. To... That's, he's, a, he's another character. When I was talking about yeah. Larry Stevens, um, when I was talking about the fact that I never really knew anything about Larry Stevens until, obviously, now, having read the book, I know a, a lot more about Larry Stevens than I did. But I never knew anything about Wallace Greenstead. I knew he'd been a, you know, a, a common or garden announcer. That I mean, um, that's one of the best of all of them as well, the Greenslade story. But yes. you might have ha- you might have to have listened to a few more shows before you get to that one. I wouldn't recommend that as the first one you hear. But that is oh, definitely no. an absolute classic. It is, it is. Um, but he sadly, I think he he died not long after the Goons ended. I mean, well, I think um, he was just like a standard BBC announcer, wasn't he? Yeah, but he really threw us all into it, didn't he? And yeah, he, he was he, absolutely he, perfect. And Andrew Timothy, as far as I know. I, you know, I read an interview with him, and it, he, he he didn't seem to be that fond of the Goon Show. He, he didn't seem to be that interested in it. Well, yeah, because BBC announcers were kind of, I guess, regarded almost treated like members of the clergy. You didn't you didn't joke around them. It's amazing of, you know, that they, they got away with it. It's amazing that they actually managed to they put that show on when they did, really, and how the BBC are very proper and you know were very proper back then. I guess they had Itmar, but that was much more old-fashioned and conventional, I think. But, you know, there were links possibly to it, Mark. I mean, when Jack Train came on, as you said, he fitted in quite well. There's a, so, there's a great story I read that um, 
the producer of the goons was editing their show and over in the corner of the office somebody else was editing a program called life with the lions yes and uh, do you know this story and the, yes. produ- the producer says um how you getting on he says oh not got a lot of laughter this week <laughs> and the goon show producer says oh we've got too much so in the end he edited that laughter <laughs> into the life with the lions <laughs> I mean, the audiences in some of the shows are absolutely hysterical, aren't they? They're howling. It goes on, the laughter goes on for ages. And, yeah, uh, the, and there's 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 one guy, and I, I think it's, I think this I've identified this correctly. I might be wrong, but there's 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 some shows that you'll hear a guy who's got. In fact, I think the Greenslade story in particular, you can hear there's one guy. That's I know got who that very is. I know who you mean. Yeah, he's got and, a really distinctive I, laugh. Yeah, I know who you mean. I, I, he goes, do, hey! do you know who, he goes like that. Do you know who that is? No. No, that, I think <laughs> that is David Lodge. Is it really? Mm. Is it really? Yeah. Ah, it's fascinating. That would certainly make sense. He was a big and he, friend of theirs, obviously, for years, yeah. Yeah. And, that and is amazing. I, That's David Lodge. How do you know that? I read that somewhere. I picked that up from something. I wish I could tell you from where. Yeah, because um, he laughs. It's very distinctive laugh, and it's in a hell of a lot of those shows. And it's a, it's a great laugh. American sitcoms from the seventies, even into the eighties, which were just using canned laughter from shows like I Love Lucy back in the fifties. And there's a, as apparently there's a very distinctive woman who used to go to the I Love Lucy recordings and laugh. And you can hear her very distinctive laugh turning up in shows like, I don't know, Elf in, in 1984. You know. <laughs> and she's, she's been dead in the ground 20 years by that time. <laughs> but her laugh lives on, folks. Her laugh lives on. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. And in fact, that's interesting. You mentioned on some of the other goon pods that the Starlings you didn't think worked because there wasn't an audience there. Mm. And I have to agree with you; it did not work. Um, the, the sound effects go on too long, and they were—they didn't—they weren't tight enough. It's funny how much the show does rely on having an audience there. Yes, because it was the Starlings, and there was the reason why, which was about Cleopatra's needle. Yeah, I can't remember that one. I must have heard it, but. I made Spike Milligan laugh. How about ending with that? Go. <laughs> right. So I went to see Milligan in one of his very last performances. It was when he was doing a poetry show at the Dillawar Pavilion in Bexhill. And, um, yeah, it was essentially him reading out all of his poems, really. It was, it was, it was really nice. And everybody likes his poems. Even my mum, who doesn't really understand the goons, likes his poems, you know. I think his yes. kids' poems are probably the best children's poems, poems ever written. Yes, and, absolutely. Um, on the Ning Nang Nong was voted the best kids' poem ever. And afterwards, somehow, I, I just got backstage. I think I just said, can I go and say hello? And I said, yeah, you know. So I went backstage, and there was his agent, Norma, there, and yep. um, Milligan drinking wine. What did I say to him? I said, uh, I've, I've written a poem. Uh, and he, he said, oh, yeah. I said, uh, yeah. I said, uh, a man with a car from Sardinia had a mini that couldn't have been minier. I'm taking it back, he replied, for the lack of the people that you can get in here. I said that to him. <laughs> and Milligan started laughing. And he did that thing where when he laughs, I've seen him do this on TV. He do, you can't hear a sound. He, he goes dead mm. silent and he waves his hand about. Yeah, 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 I know what you mean. And yep. he started doing that, and I thought, oh, my God. Oh, wow. And so I just said, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that show, and, you know, that was it. And I just, that was it. You could <laughs> dine out on that for the rest of your life. Yeah. John, John listen, I've, I've really enjoyed our time. It's been a lot of fun talking about this show and, and the goons as a whole. Yeah, I mean, if it um, hadn't been for them, I wouldn't have been interested in comedy, really. Tell me about your podcast. Yeah, so I've done five series of this podcast, which you can find on the British Comedy Guide, called the John Dredge Nothing to Do with Anything Show. And okay. my two influences are Kenny Everett and Spike Milligan. 
so yeah it's uh, i've done five series of that and it's extremely silly and um uh, uses sound in a in a silly way don't you do a podcast with a colleague yeah i also do a podcast called the dredge land podcast spectacular which is me and my colleague andy harland i'm dredge he's land and together we yeah. are unemployed but we're also called dredge land <laughs> and uh, yeah it's just improvisational madness uh, we do that every week and uh, you can find that on my twitter feed at john dredge and it's just us rambling on in an insane manner for half an hour every week, which I, I quite like doing. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's, it's the voices. I'll Thank tell you what, I'll be doing some massive amount of editing. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, No, my pleasure. It's all in the mind, as you know. And uh, thank you all for um, for listening, and please rate and review in the usual places because it all helps. Uh, it all helps. And it all helps. It and helps. Um, <laughs> Right, I'm stopping now. Thanks and bye. The Goon Show, which was recorded, was produced by John Browell. Peter Sellers is now appearing in Brouhaha at the Aldwych Theatre London and Harry Seacombe in Larger's Life at the Opera House Manchester.